0: welcome to the give back economy a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise now with your host peter miller welcome today we have a social innovator who is the executive director of a huge social enterprise with a wide variety of programs social enterprises, and her name is Anita Prasad, and she's from Working for Change. Welcome, Anita.
1: Hi there, Peter, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so let's get into your academic career first. Where did you go to post-secondary school?
1: Um, So I was born and raised in India, and at the age of 20, I moved to Toronto. And I went to, uh, I did a one-year program at, at Ryerson, which was kind of uh, a bridging program. And then I was at York University, where I uh, did a bachelor's in psychology, um, uh, a bachelor's with honors, so it was one extra year. Um, and then I went back to George Brown for um, a, a social work diploma. And uh, I found myself in the sector after that.
0: Well, that's interesting. I don't.
1: I don't have much of an academic career, um, but uh, yeah, I found, found uh, myself doing very meaningful work over the last 15 years despite that, so
0: yeah. Well, you're street smart as well, so that makes- I'd like to think so. <laughs> that makes a big difference. And I'm a former teacher at Seneca and Centennial. Okay. So yeah. I do- I've big,
1: actually been- Sorry, sorry to have interrupted you. I've actually been in, in the area of um, social work uh, for, for a number of years and this arena of social enterprise is uh, a little bit different from what I've done before, um, but you know contains the principles of community economic development for people living in poverty. So um, there were also areas of overlap and so I found myself um, uh, you know in, in this new organization, I'm somewhat new to the role. Uh, I've only been at Working for Change for about six months, actually.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk prior to that. Where did you work after your education?
1: Um, I worked for uh, a social justice nonprofit organization, which is actually uh, a partner organization to Working for Change. We're located in the same building uh, out um, of Parkdale, um, which is a neighborhood with a very rich history um, and uh, sort of um, at the very at the center of the psychiatric survivor movement. And so, my previous employer was an organization called Park, uh, the Parkdale Activity Recreation Center. Uh, they're a very large, multi-service uh, social justice organization working in the area of homelessness, mental health, addiction, and poverty. And so, I ran. Um, I, I didn't. of different roles in that organization Uh, one sort of looking at sort of system solutions to the food insecurity for homeless communities so i was coordinating a network of 30 drop-in centers that were uh, looking at issues of nutrition specifically for homeless communities and um, uh, designing food interventions that ensured that uh, even the most vulnerable people living in poverty were able to access uh, decent healthy food um, and so that was one component of my job. And the other component was actually uh, as a frontline worker in the drop-in sector, uh, doing sort of mental health uh, crisis intervention and support work. Um, so, so yeah, and before that I was, uh, I've been doing grassroots work, uh, anti-poverty work, both in, in Toronto and in India, because I continue to have a very strong relationship with, um, with India still. Uh, and I've done a ton of work in, in rural India as well at the grassroots level. So my career hasn't really followed a very straight trajectory. It's been quite meandering, uh, doing bits of human rights work, um, you know, homelessness work, uh, mental health crisis intervention work, food security, uh, ecological justice, and, and and farming. So it's covered a pretty wide breadth of, of subjects. And uh, so I'm really grateful to have that kind of Um, global perspective um, to doing anti-poverty
0: work here in Toronto. That's exciting. It is broad range. And uh, and that provides you the the background to be able to assume your current job so I can see how you led to that uh, direction. So can you uh, tell me where the name Working for Change came from?
1: Well, Working for Change was formerly known as the um, Ontario Council for Alternative Businesses. And uh, that sort of, uh, you know, came out of this, the, again, the psychiatric survivor movement, where, uh, you know, our, one of our founders, Diana Caponi, was a psychiatric survivor herself. And uh, her and her sister, Pat Caponi, were big anti-poverty activists in the city. And uh, a lot of their work was actually creating employment opportunities for people that were marginalized by mental health, by addiction, by poverty. And so the solution to that was through the support of of CAMH, which is where this idea was born. Um, We started the Ontario Council of Alternative Businesses and we uh, started our first social enterprise, which was Out of This World Cafe. Um, Now, over time, uh, say, I believe it was in the early 90s that we decided to to change our name from something so formal sounding to something that was a little bit more representative of our passion for social change. And so uh, our longest, uh, you know, and we wanted to work with a central component of our kind of theory of change because there's no way to lift people out of poverty unless, you know, they have access to decent income. And given that people with these challenges are very marginalized from the the mainstream kind of job market and the economy, uh, we realized that we had the only way to do that would be to create those employment opportunities ourselves. And so, uh, we wanted to have a name that included the the word work because that was a central part of what we did. But it wasn't just about um, you know work wasn't just the uh, um, sort of the the end goal, but that Work was in some ways um, the means to a greater end, which was uh, social change. Right, people being lifted out of poverty, and so we played around with 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 a bunch of words that we wanted to see. And um, Pat Fowler, our employee who's been with us now for thirty years, uh, came up with the name "working uh, working for change." Um, you know, and initially people were like, "Does that suggest that you're?" you know going to be willing to work for, for pennies and very cheap um, but over time we've managed to uh, you know um, through our work which also includes a huge component of advocacy and public education uh, we have uh, positioned ourselves as the leaders in, in um, economic development for people with lived experience So we're also an entirely survivor-run organization, which means that everybody employed in the organization, including at the executive level, are all people with lived experience of either of some form of marginalization, um, whether that's mental health or trauma or um, uh, immigrant, refugee, uh, newcomer challenges. So um, there's, uh, there's, that advocacy component and uh, the creation of social enterprises are the two ways in which we as a collective of survivors uh, work towards change. So that's where our name comes from.
0: Interesting. So based on your website, you're a combination of social enterprises and programs. Mm -hmm. And... uh, so it must be challenging to decide when you create something new, whether it's going to be a program or a social enterprise. How do you deal with that situation?
1: Um, well, we're, uh, we haven't been at a place yet where, or in a position yet where we've had to, uh, at least in my time here in the last few years, uh, haven't really been about uh, new social enterprises because we're trying to grow and and um, achieve a bunch of things with our existing social enterprises that we, we're still in the process of doing. So we haven't really explored um, opening any more new enterprises. Um, however, um, the, it, it rarely is a choice between either the enterprise or the program because our programs are funded by government. And so um, you know, we have various uh, levels of government that fund our skills skills building or um, employment readiness programs. Uh, so it hasn't really been uh, a kind of tough choice between one or the other. Um, but um, yeah, I think some of the challenges that we're, we're, we're facing as far as programming is concerned is, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are offering kind of peer Uh, Training. And um, we're not sure that um, everyone is necessarily equipped to do that because it takes a very particular set of, um, um, I guess, knowledge and expertise to be able to do peer development for people with lived experience. Um, And so there's a lot of competition out, out, out in the field because there's a limited amount of money and a, a lot of people are now jostling for, for this funding to be able to do peer development. Uh, but we believe that peer development should be run by peers, by people with lived experience rather than than other groups. And so um, that is some of the and you know, whether that's in the in the COVID shelters where the city is trying to you know, place peers, whether that's in the hospital network, whether that's community-based crisis intervention, people are really starting to recognize the value of lived experience. Um, And so we have a lot of groups that are trying to do this work. And so uh, the sector is becoming a little bit saturated. Um, While not all of these programs necessarily um, offer adequate training or the appropriate types of training, uh, to be able to successfully do the work. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if I've answered your question properly, but so far I haven't really been in a place of tension between either the enterprise or the program because they're both sort of complementary. And for many of our training programs, like we have one which is food and horticulture, we actually place people from those programs directly into our enterprises because our enterprises are in those two areas of landscaping and horticulture and um, food services.
0: So, Anita, let's get into, just briefly, because there's a lot of information on the site, a brief description of the social enterprises.
1: So, like I said, we have two areas. One is horticulture and landscaping, um, greening, uh, and the other is in food services. Um, We have sort of four, um, I guess, enterprises within the umbrella of out of this world cafe, which was our original enterprise that came was a small little place in the basement of cam H. Uh, and since then we've, we've grown to be, um, a sort of a multimillion dollar, uh, business out of this world. Um, and so there's out of this world and it's four kind of cafes within the, the cam H complex. And then we have the raging spoon cafe, which is located out of, um, Parkdale in Queen West, um, that's also uh, catering. So some of them are restaurant based where we have, you know, cafe style people come in and eat and others are catering. So um, those are the two kind of areas in food services. And um, then we have Parkdale Green Thumb Enterprises, which is in the area of landscaping and horticulture. Uh, And a lot of our clients are uh, BIAs across the city uh, and other nonprofit partners, um, and then we also have another small social enterprise that's called Grassroots Research, which is a community-based research enterprise where we train uh, and employ people with lived experience to actually be researchers and and um, kind of uh, in their own communities. And so that uh, that particular enterprise, Grassroots Research, is um, is one of the smaller enterprises that you know doesn't have a steady stream of revenue It's sort of project-based people know who we are and so if they want to do community-based research they approach us but our food and horticulture enterprises are, are much more steady but this is pre-pandemic you know because of the pandemic our revenue streams have been very badly impacted especially for our food services so uh so yeah
0: But right. that's not all is there there's more Voices from the Street, Women Speak Out, Relief Worker, your wellness program, your shelter peer support. There are so many
1: groups. So those are not social enterprises. Those are our uh, skills building programs. So we have program managers in-house. We're funded by government and other bodies to do those trainings. Um, So what I named previously was just our social enterprises, but... We also, we're trying to create a kind of holistic system internally in the organization. One is to have the employment opportunities available to people. We do that through our enterprise. The other is recognizing that people with lived experience because they're marginalized, they need skills building and training to be able to get back into the workplace. So we do that component. And the other major component of what we do is advocacy. So we do a lot of public education and activism around issues of mental health, issues of homelessness, So we try to address that economic marginalization through through sort of taking a multi-pronged approach. Um, And because um, a lot of our folks with lived experience, um, you know, a a lot of them are able to find meaningful work in the social services sector because that tends to be the sector that, that recognizes the value of, lived experience of homelessness or marginalization and so that is the sector where we focus a lot of our 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 efforts so the relief worker is again people placed in drop-in centers and shelters Um, the shelter peer program again it's it's placing people with lived experience within the city's shelter system so um we have we have all those programs voices from the streets is of course about leadership development so we train people in public speaking, in, in public advocacy, um, how to sit at various tables. So for example, our graduates are placed at, uh, on the boards of organizations or um, you know, uh, advisory committees for uh, whether that's the police board or um, you know, uh, United Way or um, city's housing network. So Voices from the Street and Women Speak Out is about leadership development. Um, and supporting people with lived experience to use their experiences as an advocacy tool for social
0: change. So, Anita, talk about the importance of partnerships.
1: Very, it's very important. Within, um, we have very good relationships with a bunch of other kind of nonprofit uh, social enterprises, whether that's Building Up or Away, which is a courier company. Um, we've had good relationships and partnership with them. Uh, We also have strong partnerships, um, like, for example, the organization I worked with previously, uh, Parkdale Activity Recreation Center. Our partnership with them dates back more than 20 years um, because there's a lot of strong alignment there. So, for example, on the Shelter Peer Program, we are are partners and we're both funded by the city. We're working for change, provides the training, and Park actually employs the people that we train. And those people end up in permanent unionized well-paid jobs which is not something you see very often in in um, the social enterprise sector unless it's in the area of say something like construction where you do have a lot of job demand you do have unions that kind of thing but mostly for a lot of other social enterprises the work is not necessarily well paid it's not it's not as stable as it could be um, and so some of these partnerships we rely on them very heavily to be able to um, be able to place our graduates in those spaces so we have strong relationships with um, a lot of nonprofit organizations where over uh, now more than you know 25 30 years of history we've been placing people um, in these in these organizations so so absolutely those partnerships are very
0: important okay a little more challenging question in three years from today, <laughs> what will working for a change look like?
1: It's hard to say what it will,
0: <coughs> excuse me,
1: look like because um, the COVID-19 pandemic has just, um, it's just changed the, the landscape so, um, and it's, it, it feels, kind of impossible to predict how things will play out. You know, earlier this year, we were hopeful that, okay, we just need to write it out till late fall, December, then everyone will be vaccinated. Things will slowly start to get back to normal. People will be catering, we're, you know, people will be buying food. And so w- we had some hopes that we would be able to recover and we still have some hope around that. But with, with the pandemic, things are changing month to month oh. and now with the variants on the rise it's it's really impossible to say when we'll actually be able to even return to pre pandemic level so needless to say where our revenue streams specifically for food have been totally decimated so really our concern at this point is how do we stay alive which is really not much of a strategic plan because pre pandemic you know we had lots of goals of you know increasing our revenue streams being able to pay our staff more money um, you know, so growing the enterprises and also setting ourselves up as we leaders in, in peer development. Um, but it's been, it's been a challenging road to get there. And so it's, it's hard to say where we will be in three years, but, uh, if I could, if I had, if I was able to dream without any restrictions, you know, I would like to see us, um, you know, positioned as as the organization for peer development. Because like I said, there's many organizations that are doing peer work that are not survivor run and not survivor based. Um, and so, uh, you know, positioning ourselves as the leaders in that space is, is something that all of us internally would like to see. Um, you know, we would, like to be able to apply a strong equity lens to the way our social enterprises operate. And it's been challenging to do that. And so, um, you know, being kind of social justice oriented, um, you know, under my leadership, I would like to see the organization, for example, over time, um, follow and meet the recommendations by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for businesses, for example. Uh, we would like to be able to pay people equitable wages. Um, And so all of those things are, you know, take time to manifest. And um, I would like us to be able to um, bring that kind of justice framework to our businesses, um, you know, because uh, that's that's really kind of central to our mandate around social change. Um, But it's hard to say where we're going to land. Um, and, um, uh, so, so yeah, it's just one of those situations that I wish I had a clear roadmap and being uh, the leader of an organization. Many of us are desperate for those clear roadmaps for where to go from here. Um, and a lot of us executive directors are, have to sit in the discomfort of not knowing that quite yet. Um, you know, if, if even if you know that things are going to be um, challenging for a few years, you can plan to s- start to plan some resilience strategies around that. But with COVID, it is very, very unknowable. Um, so our catering enterprises, for example, are starting to, starting to pivot because we know that it's gonna be quite a while, for example, before people start to gather in person. And so catering is going to be dead in the water. Uh, for some time yet. So if we want our catering businesses to survive, we have to look at new ways of, of of doing that work. And so we're looking at new partnerships. Many of them are, for example, supportive housing providers. So rather than catering for meetings and events, we're going to be catering to, to housing providers, so preparing meals for, for residents in in um, long-term care homes, in um, in supportive housing complexes. Again, those partnerships become really, really important. So whether that's with um, the YWCA, where we have a relationship with them or the Gerstein Center, we cater all their meals. Um, We're trying to pivot the way we do business so that we can stay alive. Um, But really our goal for the next three years is to try and recover that we're at least back at a place that we were pre pandemic. And it's gonna be a challenge to get there just because of how the economy has been hit by by COVID-19. Fortunately, our horticulture enterprise has been continued to thrive so far because it's outdoor work and it hasn't been restricted. But as all of the the business improvement areas uh, are, are severely hit by COVID because no one's allowed to operate, the money available to do landscaping in the city is also slowly going to be choked out. So it really is a, it's a game of let's wait and see um, where we, where we get to I wish I had more clarity for your sake and for mine but we uh, have to live in that uncertainty in this moment so,
0: so based, based on what you've done I'm sure you've had inquiries uh, during your time and previously from other communities and other provinces have you thought of doing a social franchise where it could be done in different communities and you provide the operations and marketing manuals and then you charge a fee and then you provide ongoing support. So for example, have you thought about setting up the same business model in India?
1: Um, we haven't, we haven't quite considered that we haven't, um, this idea of replicating our model in other places. We have actually supported development of food enterprises in other parts of Ontario. So our staff have consulted and been part of the groups that have created similar cafes in other places like Peterborough and other places. So we have been involved in this type of cross-pollination within Canada, um, including, so for example, we had a, a nationwide kind of, a uh, network around Women Speak Out, which was around um, leadership development for, for women, um, where we worked in in Manitoba, we worked in um, uh, New Brunswick, in various other parts of the country. So our program staff would go meet with local organizations, develop curriculum around these these issues, um, et etc. So we have done some work in cross-pollination. Some of that work has also taken us to other parts of the world. Um, like Ireland and Brazil um, and other places. Um, But really, that's more about, that's been more in the area of our leadership development programs, uh, certainly the global work, uh, than it has been about social enterprise. But in Ontario, we have played a role in the development of food-based social enterprises for people with lived experience. The other challenge that we have is that we're not actually a very big organization and we, we are not very rich, which means that we really, really struggle with administrative burden because we don't quite have the funding to cover that. You know, We've been funded by government for a number of years and like many other nonprofits and charitable organizations, we haven't seen funding increases in well over a decade. What that means is that we're trying to do more and more with less and less, which means that our capacity to support enterprises in other places is very, very minimal. We're just about able to handle our own stuff. And it's, it's one of the things that I had to make an appeal to funders. It would be, it's going to sound so basic and, and uninspiring, but we need more money to, we need more core funding to be able to, responsibly manage our organizations, but certainly as they grow, um, that piece is very critical. So we don't have the capacity beyond a a basic level to actually see, um, to support enterprises in other places um, with that that stuff. But that's a great idea and it's something to think about. And as our capacity increases, that, that would be something useful to look into.
0: So your ask of the listeners today, besides uh, money from corporates in terms of sponsorship. And uh, you know, corporate social responsibility is a huge thing, as you know, and uh, there's companies like Walmart that are even into corporate social responsibility. In Canada, they have a department of seven people just in that area alone, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So are there any other asks that you would have of the listeners?
1: So, I, I mean, I, I about, the thing about money is that, you know, and funding is that funding is, is in fact, it is political. What I mean by that is that we, we would be very, very careful about who we accepted money from. And yes, we believe that government certainly plays a role because a lot of the people that we employ are people who are on ODSP and OW. So it is actually in the government's interest to to support social enterprises that help people get off income assistance and become financially independent. So our partnerships are, you know, with, um, and even organizations like the Toronto Enterprise Fund through United Way, yes, they have a lot of corporate donors, uh, but the Toronto Enterprise Fund has a mandate of hiring people with on on income assistance to help support them into greater economic independence. Would we take money from Walmart um, or Nestle or the big big corporates? It's unlikely because we can't say that we're anti-poverty work um, an anti-poverty social justice organization and accept money that uh, comes from a model which is built in such a way that it's an exploitative model, uh, whether that's the way in how much they pay their workers, uh, the fact that many of them don't have benefits, many of them didn't receive a pandemic pay um, it it doesn't it doesn't benefit poor people to be taking money from from big corporates that make their money off the backs of poor people. So we take a justice lens to who we take money from, and we'd rather. Um, uh, wait for the right partners that, that are more aligned with our values and our ethics than just take money from anywhere. Because also that money dictates how you do the work. So most funding comes with very specific outcomes in mind. And a lot of those outcomes are not social in nature. And so we, we want to be able to control the way that money shapes the work that we do. So that's just, that's one thing I wanted to clarify. The other thing is that, you know, I think, I think a lot of kind of charitable organizations and nonprofit social enterprises that employ vulnerable people that employ uh, people living in poverty, we've sort of set ourselves up um, in this, this unique, in this kind of problematic way, because we. You know, our branding strategy is, hey, if you want a job done cheap, we're the people to do it for you, you know? So whether that's our food enterprises that are competing on Queen Street West, you know, um, or our, our um, landscaping enterprises that's, that's competing with the big corporates, we are constantly being undercut. And so our way of getting business, unfortunately, very often is, you want a job done affordably, you want a job done cheaply, Where are the people to go. But what that means is that we have to pay our staff property wages. Many of our staff, certainly the ones employed in our enterprises, are hovering at around minimum wage, and we know that minimum wage is not a living wage. So if we wanna be able to actually lift people out of poverty, we need to just completely shift how we look at social enterprises. And part of that is the attitude, well, you're employing poor people, minimum wage is better than no wage, so people should be happy with that outcome. But that's not what, because again, we wanna take an equity lens to what we do, which is that we wanna pay people a decent living wage, we have to raise our prices, right? And, and our customers, our supporters, need to be able to see the value in that. They could go to Tim Hortons and get something for cheaper, but if they were to buy that same thing with us, you know, there's so much social return on that, that money they put into buying from our business.
0: Anita, Similarly. Anita, we could talk for an hour. You have so much to offer. Sorry. That is very exciting. So what is your website?
1: Um, our website is uh, workingforchange.ca.
0: Okay. Well it's it's been a real pleasure to learn something about Anita and something about working for change. And I look forward to hearing a lot more about you in the future. Thank you Thank very you, Peter. much.
1: Thanks for having me. Take care.